Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-hosts while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. Welcome back, Warrior Next Door listeners. We have a very special interview on tap today, and it's going to require a different format than maybe the one that our listeners have gotten used to, which is quite simply taking clips from veterans we've interviewed as volunteers for the Library of Congress and providing additional commentary or amplifying certain things that the veterans said. This episode or series is going to be different um, for a number of reasons. First off, this is going to feature Major General William Matz. So it's not too often that uh, people can have access to retired generals, especially ones who have served with distinction, like General William Matz has done. So he retired in 1995 and received the Army Distinguished Service Medal. He received not one, not two, not three, but four Legion of Merits for his service. He received a Purple Heart in Vietnam a Silver Star for Gallantry, again, during Vietnam, and last but certainly not least, the second highest medal awarded for valor, the Distinguished Service Cross. And he did all of this (laughs) with a withered leg from childhood polio. Major General William Matz has overcome a lot in his life to be able to achieve the things that he has done. Not only did he serve uh, in in Korea uh, after the Korean War, but as I mentioned, he served in Vietnam, where he distinguished himself. Operation Just Cause, which was the invasion of Panama, and he was also um, in charge of the compound at the time during the Riyadh compound bombings, which is often described as Saudi Arabia's 9/11. He served under Ronald Reagan, George H. W. Bush. George W. Bush, it keeps going, the Obama and Trump administrations, and he would serve all of these administrations in a variety of amazing roles. We also want to thank Marilyn Walton. Uh, For those who remember, she was the guest host for the Wally Dunn series, where she brought her expertise in as someone 
who wrote books and participated in a variety of historical endeavors outlining the plight of World War II POWs, primarily flyers, of which her, um, which her father was one of those. Marilyn was gracious enough to introduce us to General William Matz, and um, quite frankly, without that introduction, I don't know if this interview would have been possible. So again, thank you, Marilyn, for your support, your continued support of our podcast. So we're not going to spend any time at all having Ryan and I pick apart clips and sharing them with you. We're going to do this one differently. We're going to play the entire interview in three different parts with no commercial interruptions, so to speak, with no commentary from Ryan and I, because quite frankly, Major General William Matz's ability to articulate not only his experiences, but to place them in context on his own uh, is without peer. So we hope you enjoy this fairly significant departure from what we normally feature. And sit back and absorb what what it would be like to be this young man, this officer, who distinguished himself several occasions. You're going to hear him talk about it in detail, doing it with a disability and not letting that hinder him at all. So without further ado, here is part one of the General Matz series. So I, I, I'd like to start us off by just have you telling me what it was like growing up, I believe in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania? Yes, correct. Yeah. So what, what was that like, and how did you end up joining the military? Yeah, well, um, as my parents would relate to me, I was born on a very uh, warm Indian summer day on 7 October back in 1938. I was born in Drexel Hill, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a, uh, a small borough right outside of West Philadelphia. And I grew up there uh, uh, all my life. And, and then uh, in 1957, when I graduated from high school, I went on to Gettysburg College. Uh, but before that, when I was um, almost six years old, why? Uh, I had a major adversity hit me in life, and I came down with polio, oh. infantile paralysis, which was the, the 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 scourge of every mother back in the 40s and 50s. And I was hit with it very badly uh, on an August day in uh, 1944 uh, while visiting with my grandmother. I just collapsed. I couldn't move my leg. I couldn't get up, et cetera. They took me to the hospital, spinal tapped me, and diagnosed me with, uh, uh, with poliomyelitis. So I was hospitalized. My right leg was paralyzed from uh, toe to hip. And the doctor told my good mother that I would never be able to uh, walk again without the assistance of either a crutch or a leather brace. <sighs> my dad was overseas in the Pacific in the Navy at the time during World War II. So it was a very tough time, Tony, for my family. Of course, I was a young kid, but I do remember certain aspects of that uh, terrible summer. And then the uh, the next four or five or six years in and out of hospitals, 
in braces, out of braces, uh, trying to recover from the paralysis and the polio. Uh, so uh, I just mentioned that. Uh, when I did get out of the hospital, I then entered uh, my first grade in school one year behind class because I had been in the hospital. And I went up through eighth grade. I started, my legs started to get a little stronger. The doctor let me, uh, told me I could uh, sort of play sports. And in high school, I was uh, able to play football and uh, go out on the track team. All the while, my leg was still mending and getting stronger, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a permanent limp. And uh, to this day, I have two different shoe sizes, a size 12 on my left foot, a size 9 on my right. Wow. And I have what they call a uh, drop foot as a result of the polio. So I sort of battled that all my life. And it's, it's really, it's sort of miraculous what I was able to do to get into the Army and, and uh, be an airborne, a paratrooper, et cetera, and do the things that I was able to do. So actually, I'm writing a book about that That's, right now. Well, just really quick, I mean, um, polio was something that a lot of people never recovered from at all. I mean, FDR is a perfect example of that. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Tony polio was terrible back then. And this was the epidemic of 1944 in Philadelphia and other East coast cities where it really hit hard. And, uh, kids that got bulbar polio had to go into the iron lungs. A good number of them never made it. Uh, I had paralysis polio, which affected my entire right leg and was starting to move into my left leg, uh, before I went into the hospital. So yeah, it was a very debilitating, uh, it was a terrible disease. Uh, and you, it, it left a stigma on the whole family and so forth. What do you mean by a stigma in the family? Well, in other words, when I came home from the hospital, the, uh, uh, you had to have, you had to put a, uh, a quarantine sign on your house that said, uh, a child inside has polio so the place was sort of quarantined in a way, but all my, you know, I'm a, a young kid growing up, five, six, seven, eight years old. The mothers of my friends wouldn't, you know, were, were, were very hesitant on having them, you know, go out and play with me and so forth, thinking that uh, uh, it was contagious and I would pass it on. So you sort of grew up that way as a young kid with a little bit of a stigma, you know, there's the polio kid type thing. But I think it made me stronger. It made me battle. It made me stronger and get up on my feet and, and try and be the same as everybody else. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you. And you just answered that was, I mean, there's, I guess, a couple of ways you can respond to this. One is to sit around and feel terrible about it and not do anything. And the other, it sounds like what you did was when you had a chance to go out and do the things you couldn't do when you were all braced up, you did them with vigor. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right, Tony. And I was lucky. I got what they called the Sister Kenny treatment. Sister Kenny is an Australian nurse. Uh, she nursed uh, the Aussie soldiers in World War I, came back to her country, and she developed a way uh, to uh, work with polio patients that was totally different from uh, bracing and, uh, and, you know, and putting crutches on kids in the United States. So, she came and she worked uh, on what they call the uh, uh, the moist hot pack treatment. Hmm. Your leg was wrapped in hot packs and in gentle therapy every day. I had that for months, you know. 
I can still remember the steamy hot packs they put on, but but that uh, soothed the muscle, relaxed the muscle, got you out of the brace, and that's what really cured me. So tell me a little bit about your amazing family who you know went through this with you. Now that I learned that they quarantine houses and whatnot, I mean, uh, your dad, I presume, made it back from the war. Did you have brothers and sisters? What was it like growing up? Yeah, well, uh, when I came down with polio, my dad was uh, in the West Coast just getting ready to ship overseas on a minesweeper. Hmm. The Red Cross notified him that his son had come down with polio. The Navy let him come back real quickly, you know, for a couple days. And uh, they saw me in the hospital, but they were only allowed to go to the foot of my bed. They couldn't touch me, you know, couldn't touch the bed because I was in a quarantine uh, uh, portion of the hospital there where all the polio kids were. Uh, and, I, and I remember that day he showed up in, uh, in his sailor uniform. That's the last time I saw him until uh, January 1st, 1946, mm-hmm. uh, a year later when he got out of the Navy and the war was over. Yeah, so I it was very tough on my mother then, you know, coping with that. And I have a younger sister, 18 months younger. Uh, and so it was the two of us uh, growing up uh, in Lansdowne Borough there. And as I say, it was just it was just a tough time for her with my dad being gone. So you're able to not only go to high school, but do high school stuff. Uh, when it comes to athletics, like you mentioned, playing football, which is amazing. Um, so how did that, do you think, how did that ultimately create the conditions for you to go into the military or did it? Yeah, I, I, I think coming down with polio, um, as you said earlier, you know, you, you, you could have not had to resolve, just lay in bed, let them brace you. But I was determined I did not want to be a cripple. The word cripple was passed through the hospital, was passed through families, every because polio crippled you. And I did not want to be a cripple all my life. And when my dad got back home out of the Navy, uh, I was still using a, a, a crutch a little bit. And he said, Get rid of that crutch. You don't need it. We're going to get over it. <laughs> so uh, how did it affect me? I think it just, it, 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 uh, it pushed me through adversity. I think it made me stronger. Uh, it, it, it brought out my resolve and any grit that I had in me, and I think it helped me throughout life to be sort of the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the pushy, persevering guy that I am. I think it all started back there when I fought it as polio. Yeah. So um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was you said, yet you're writing a book. I mean, a lot of people could write a book just about this experience, about overcoming polio and how it can help you the rest of your life. We're going to get into a lot more of your experiences later, which are equally as compelling. Um, but what prompted you decide to write a book? Well, I'll tell you what prompted me. Uh, we have seven grandsons, no granddaughters, and uh, their ages are 18 to 25 right now. But as, as they were growing up, they kept asking, Grandpa, you know, what did you do? You know, they, they saw some of my uh, plaques and things in the house, and 
and what was Vietnam like, and did you fight? You know, you know what young boys ask those kind of. In fact, one of my grandsons thought I fought in the Civil War. You know, <laughs> so, so so I said, you know, it's uh, after I left the Trump administration, what two two and a half years ago. I said, now's a good time to put these notes together, and to leave something for for the kids. And so I just started out as putting notes together, and and uh, a couple of my good friends start reading the notes and learned a little more about my life. And they said, Bill, you, you've got quite a, uh, you know, quite a life there. You were able to be a ranger airborne. You were paralyzed at one time. You got a gimpy leg still, <laughs> and I'm still in a brace. And, uh, and they said, you know, you've got an amazing story. You ought to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> and my doctor, I was, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome during my Army retirement physical in 95. And that's a condition that many kids who had polio in the 40s and 50s are having now. It's called post-polio syndrome, PPS. So I'm being treated for that at the National Rehabilitation Hospital and have been for the last 12 years here in D.C. And my doctor said that, Dr. Asap. He said, you know, General Matz, you this is quite a story. You know, with the leg you've got and all that you've been able to do, uh, you know, you should write a book. So that's how I came about the book. So have you worked on a title for it yet? Yeah, well, there's a couple titles. It's interesting <laughs> you're saying that. Uh, the manuscript is done, and it, I finished it back in April. So I finally got an agent. You have to get a book agent, and they put together a proposal and send it to publishers, Tony. I don't know. You may have written a book. You may be aware of what you do here. And so we're still looking at puz puzzle or uh, titles. Uh, but the one title that I've come up with is, uh, quote, My Toughest Battle. Uh, and then the subtitle would be A Vietnam Veteran uh, and His Struggle with Polio or something like that. Or, or another title is Overcoming, you know, and then a subtitle under it. So we're looking at the title. I think it's great. I've had a chance to read some of the the action reports that you ended up being decorated for at when I read this at the time. Oh, I is that know, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. But they're all, I mean, you're, I don't know, you got wiki pages out there. So, but the bottom line is, is now that I know that you had polio, what I read is even that much more amazing. So, yeah, no, wow. no. Well, well, it really is. I'm not one to brag and I never thought much about it. And when I was growing up and going through the army, I always hit it. I was embarrassed, Tony. Hmm. I, that one leg was weaker, thinner than the other leg and shorter and two different shoe sizes. I, I hid that from people. So, uh, you know. So you, you you ended up going to Gettysburg College. Yes. And, and did you go into the military before or during or after? No, uh, I went to Gettysburg College, and when I matriculated there in 1957, why uh, all the men there were required to take the first two years of ROTC. You're familiar with the ROTC program. I'm, I'm familiar with it, but our audience may not be. If you could explain what that yeah. entails. Well, it's the Reserve Officer Training Corps program. It's a, it's a major uh, means of assessing commissioned officers for the United States Army and Air Force and Navy. So I was in the Army ROTC program. I took it my first two years at Gettysburg. And uh, although... Uh, uh, Having polio would have disqualified me for it. 
I didn't want to be disqualified. I wanted to be like everybody else and take the two years of the ROTC. So they gave me a medical waiver to get into the uh, the uh, uh, air, the Army uh, basic program. That's your first two years. I did well and then was uh, competed to go take it my last two years. And I had to have a special medical examination from Walter Reed neurology people because I had polio. And they came and gave me that, and they uh, they waved me and said, yeah, okay, you can get into the program. So I got into the program and then obviously was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army on the day I graduated from college in 1961. I mean, how did you feel about that? There must have been some thought that you wouldn't be able to participate in the military because of that. Yeah, I was never, you know, I was never totally sure. And uh, the the professor of military science kept saying, you know, uh, Matt, say, yeah, you're in the program now, but, you know, we can't guarantee you when it comes commissioning time that they'll pass you, you know, that you'll, you'll pass medically. I said, I don't care. Let's just keep going, you know. Uh, so because in those days, uh, the draft was in uh, and all young men had to serve, you know, so I felt. If I'm going to be a college graduate, I'd much rather serve as a commissioned officer when I got out than wait and be drafted. And so I, I don't, a lot of people didn't know this, but there was a peacetime draft. I believe that when you graduated, we were not at war, correct? In a hot war? That's correct. We were not at war. I graduated in 61 in Vietnam. Um, we were We were starting to send advisors over there, but we weren't at war in Vietnam. The Vietnam War really... Uh, didn't really begin until what was it about March of 1965 when we started to send our first uh, units over there, uh, Army and Marine Corps infantry units. So yeah, we we were not at war. We were in the Cold War, Tony. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but all the all the guys were serving at least six months or two years. And so. You you joined the military as a second lieutenant, correct? correct? I joined the military as a second lieutenant right upon graduation from Gettysburg College. And then what was your first what was your first duty? What was your first role as a freshly minted officer in the army? Yeah, well, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia for infantry officer basic uh in in January of 62. That's when I came into the army. And then after that, they sent me to, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 weeks of intelligence school at Fort Holabird, Maryland, the old Army Intelligence Center. And then I got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. (laughs) I had volunteered on my dream sheet to go into the Airborne. I wanted to go into one of the best units, the elite units. I wanted to test myself, you know, and I got it. So here you are, you have uh, a leg with a limp. You have one shoe that's a 12, one that's a nine, and not only in the military, but you're in the, the airborne. So you had to get jump qualified, which is not, there's, there's a lot of rigor associated with being part of an airborne unit. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's very physical. And so I got it. And my uh, first assignment after the schooling was Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where the 82nd is, I'm sure you know. Uh, and I got there in May of 62. Of course, I was still a leg then, and I had to take three weeks of airborne school to get my parachute wings. And I took the three weeks uh, of airborne training and got my wings. But a little funny story there, I uh, 
you had to take a PT test just to get into the to the airboard uh, course. Yep. And I uh, part of that PT test then was 80, 80 deep knee bends in two minutes. <laughs> and and I did not get to my 80th because of my leg. But the sergeant, he wavered me and passed me. <laughs> he said, he said, Lieutenant, you owe me one. <laughs> So that's sort of a little interesting story there. He could have flunked me. I would have never gotten in the airborne, and I would have had to go leave the 82nd and go to some leg unit. But anyway, I got in, and the airborne training, uh, it, it's rigorous, Tony, but it's really not that difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. Your first week, it's all getting in shape. It's called ground week. Your second week is tower week, where you jump out of the towers and the swing landing platforms. <laughs> you learn how to uh, descend. You learn how to how to fall, uh, recover, and so forth. And then your last week is jump week, where you actually have to qualify with five jumps from an airplane. So can I talk about the tower a little bit or ask you a few questions about it? So we interviewed a uh, 101st Airborne Trooper from World War II. And he said that when you got to the tower, or when he did, he almost chickened out. But then... (laughs) Whoever was, you know, in charge of getting the troopers to jump off the tower said, well, if you're not willing to jump, then you got to go down this, this ladder all the way down. And he said that looks scarier than jumping off the tower. So he said, screw it, jumped off the tower. Did you remember what it was like when you stood up there the first time? Yeah, uh, you know, I, 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 I can relate to what that 101st Airborne Paratrooper told you. Uh, yeah, you know, once you get up there in that tower and you stand on the door and you look down at the ground, you 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 know, you sort of have that little, I mean, you know, no run in their right mind would jump out of a perfectly <laughs> <laughs> safe tower. So some people do get up there and freeze, you know. Uh, it, it, it's really rare that they, once you get that far and you get up into the tower, that you refuse to do it. But I have seen one or two refuse and they do go back down the ladder and they're just wash they wash them out then. Yeah. Yeah. The walk of shame. Uh, that, I guess. that never bothered me, you know, just didn't bother me. I just had faith. I knew, I knew I wasn't going to fall to the ground. I knew the uh, straps would catch me, et cetera. Yeah. So now that you're in the 82nd airborne, what sort of duty ended up doing? Okay. I, I went into the 82nd. I was commissioned you know, the Army, I don't know how much you know about the Army, Tony. It's got like 18 branches. Hmm. You got your combat arms, infantry, artillery, armor. You've got transportation ordinance. You got judge advocate general. You've got the MPs. So uh, anyway, I elected to go into the military intelligence at the time. So I was assigned to the 82nd Military Intelligence Detachment. It's a small detachment of fewer than 100 men. Every division has one, and you do order of battle, uh, you do imagery interpretation, et cetera. So I was assigned to the MI detachment there uh, and was the order of battle officer for the division. So what is order of battle? Order of battle is where you study you study the enemy's uh, composition, uh, you study their tactics, you study their weapons, their organization. So it's called order of battle. It's the order of the battle of any enemy you're going against. My first, uh, I mean, I got, uh, I, I got exposed to a real uh, Cold War uh, situation as soon as I got there. And that was uh, 
That was the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis of October of 1962. Remember, I had just got there. I was a young lieutenant, and uh, those 13 days in October were tough for that young Kennedy administration. Khrushchev was defying us. He put missiles into Cuba. The 82nd was the first unit alerted to go in. The entire division, 14,000 of us. So I was the order of battle officer that distributed the maps for Cuba, that studied the terrain, that studied the, uh, the river Havana, uh, that studied the uh, uh, sugarcane fields, and uh, would brief, would brief uh, the units on the conditions uh, going in, the depth of the river, the size of the cane fields, uh, what the Cuban enemy soldiers had, et cetera. That's amazing. So for maybe our audience who may not know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they put Russian, put missiles right off the coast of Florida, basically, in Cuba. Yeah, the 82nd Airborne Division, it's a light shock troop infantry unit. You guys would have been kind of the tip of the spear if that thing went hot. And the other thing is the intel that we had with spy planes and whatnot was pretty incredible. And I imagine you would have had access to that, and not a lot of people would have at that time. Is that correct? No, that, no that's a very good point, Tony. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we were, getting, we were getting new photography delivered to us every day at the 82nd. <clears throat> And this was being a photography flowing that uh, the uh, <clears throat> both the army and navy were flying over Cuba, yeah. <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. and taking first-rate shots. They then send them back to us. We would blow them up, and we'd take a look at ah, uh, you could almost see the depth of the river. You could see wow. the sugarcane fields because that's what we were jumping into, and what the Cubans were starting to do. They knew we were coming. Uh, they took the cane fields and burned them and speared them. So, you know, if you jumped in, uh, you would get uh, you could get tangled up or or impaled or cut up with a sugar cane field. But the photography was absolutely terrific. That's amazing. And I didn't know that about the sugar cane fields. But oh, yeah. I mean, it makes yeah. sense if you're going to try to prepare for an aerial invasion. So um, how worried were you that this thing was going to turn hot well i wasn't worried I, we, I was excited we were all we we wanted to go yeah we wanted to go they broke down the ammunition to platoon size we were sealed in uh some units were actually taken away to departure airfields in northern florida hmm. the plane sat right there we were sitting waiting ready to go ready to go i i didn't know and that. of course it never happened khrushchev backed off and uh, the Navy quarantine, you know, around the island, uh, stopped the missiles from coming in and out. And uh, Kennedy warned them, we're coming in. And, and they knew it, so they backed off. Hmm. The other thing we were very concerned with, I remember as a young lieutenant, there were Russian, Russian advisors there and some Russian soldiers in Cuba by those missile sites. So we were given rules of engagement there. Do not kill a Russian. Try not to kill a Russian. You know what I mean? Be very careful there. That sounds like kind of a tall order for a young gung-ho 82nd Airborne Trooper who may have to go into Cuba. Well, it was, and it was for all the infantry soldiers. I mean, you go in there, people start shooting at you, you're going to shoot back. Exactly. And so 
Yeah, it, it was quite a time, an, an exciting time for me as a young lieutenant. So I may be 23 years old then, I guess, just gone into the Army. And, of course, that made national, international news for, for uh, 13, 15 days. Yeah, yeah. Now, I remember being taught that in school. It's the closest we've come to nuclear war since exactly. the end of World War II. World war II. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. So, okay, so <laughs> you guys are on the airstrip. You're ready to go invade if you need to. And then the crisis is solved through political means. We don't yes. have a nuclear war. That's a good thing. So what did you end up doing after that? Yeah, well, so we just got the order to stand down. The crisis was over, and we went back to our normal training, et cetera. Well, after that, I continued in the 82nd. Uh, and that, that uh, right before that, though, I was also involved. I don't know if you remember, but it was the, uh, the Oxford, Mississippi crisis. No. In 1962. I'm not familiar with that. When, when a, black, a black man tried to enter the University of Mississippi and the governor said, no Negroes in the college. So that turned into a real crisis there. Uh, the 82nd was alerted for that. That was in September of 62, one month before the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I was involved in that as a young lieutenant. And I really, I really learned being a boy from the north. I really learned the, uh, the, the uh, what do I want to say? The, the, the viciousness of, uh, of, of southern. Uh, uh, what do I want to say here? Uh, I guess discrimination that was occurring then. Yeah, the viciousness of southern discrimination, and you know, I mean, I had, I had played on football teams. Uh, with black kids, went to school with them, lived with them. And then you get down there to the, to the deep South and you see that. So the 82nd did deploy to Mississippi. I mean, did you ever think when you joined the army that you'd have to deploy in our own country to protect people so they can go to school? Never, never thought that Tony. No, 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 never thought it. But if you if you look back in your history books and Google that uh, that that was the Oxford Mississippi crisis, uh, and it was the uh, it was in September, up through uh, early mid October of uh, 1962 on the Mississippi campus in Oxford, uh, we deployed to two uh, two or three departure airfields down close there. Then they put us in trucks and took us uh, to Oxford Mississippi where we uh, escorted, I mean, I didn't, but our troops escorted uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the black uh, person and, and finally got him into, uh, I think he was admitted on the 2nd of October. He was finally admitted as a full-time student in the University of Mississippi. This this may be the only time during the entire interview that I, I actually editorialize or, or add a bit to what General Matz has stated. And in this case, it was a request from General Matz himself, who had a chance to listen to the, uh, the this first episode and realize that the individual, this black man who paved the way for African Americans to get the higher education and the rights that they that they deserve, that they earned, that were legally theirs— 
needed to be recognized. And this person's name, according to General Matz, I, did, I had not heard of this person before, and I'm glad he reached out to me uh, to, to add this. I think our listeners will appreciate it. His name is James Howard Meredith. Uh, he was born on June 25th, 1933. He's still alive today. He's 80 years old. He's an uh, American civil rights activist, a writer, a political advisor, a United States Air Force veteran. And in 1962, he became the first African-American student admitted to the racially segregated University of Mississippi after the intervention of the federal government. And he was inspired by President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. Uh, Meredith decided to exercise his constitutional right and apply to the University of Mississippi. His goal was simply to put pressure on the Kennedy administration to enforce these civil rights for African Americans that he espoused during his inaugural address. So the admission of Meredith ignited what is called and what was just described by General Matz as the Old Miss Riot of 1962, and that's where Meredith's life and General Matz's would intersect. And they would intersect at the Old Miss Riots of 1962, when a young Lieutenant Matz was brought in as part of the 31,000 servicemen to help, to help quell these riots and to protect uh, James Meredith's life, who uh, was very much in danger. And the response to it was the largest ever invocation of the Insurrection Act of 1807. It, it, was, it was that big of a deal. Again, he was inspired by Kennedy, not, not, not inspired in the sense that he felt like, hey, now I can go to school or Kennedy inspired me to go to school. It was really a challenge more than an, than an inspiration. And in fact, Meredith wrote in his application that he wanted admission for his country, race, family, and himself. He said, and I quote, nobody handpicked me, I believed, and believe now that I have a divine responsibility I am familiar with the possible difficulties involved in such a move as I am undertaken, and I am fully prepared to pursue it all the way to a degree from the University of Mississippi. He would apply twice and get denied, and finally an injunction, a federal injunction, forced the university to allow him to attend. And even after that occurred, there there were still issues. The Democratic governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, declared, quote, No school will be integrated in Mississippi while I am your governor. And the state legislature quickly quickly created a plan. They passed a law, just for this one individual, they passed a law that denied admission to any person, quote, who has a crime of moral turpitude against him, or who has been convicted of any felony offense or not pardoned. The same day it became law, Meredith was accused and convicted of, quote, false voter registration in absentia in Jackson County. The conviction against Meredith was trumped up. Meredith both owned land in northern Mississippi and was registered to vote in Jackson where he lived. And later the clerk testified that Meredith was qualified to register and vote in Jackson where he was registered. This would end that part of the saga. He would be allowed to attend University of Mississippi, but the struggles, of course, didn't end there. I mean, First off, you had the riots that uh, ensued the day before he was going to show up to class. And then the day after the riots, on October 1st, 1962, after federal and state forces took control, Meredith officially became the first African-American student to enroll at the University of Mississippi. 
It was regarded as a pivotal moment, but many students harassed Meredith during his two semesters on campus. But others accepted him. According to first-person accounts, student, students living in Meredith's dorm bounced basketballs on the floor just above his room through all hours of the night. Other students ostracized him. When Meredith walked into cafeteria for meals, the students eating would turn their backs. If Meredith sat at other tables with other students, uh, all of whom were white, the students would immediately get up and go to another table. But he persisted. Through the harassment and the extreme isolation, he graduated in uh, August 18th of 1963 with a degree in political science. And then he would go on ultimately to Columbia University to earn his law degree. Um, was not aware of any of this. And in fact, he would, after this, uh, uh, create a march. It was a 220-mile march against fear from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, where his goal um, was to uh, try to encourage other black Americans to overcome the fear of voting that they've had for, for decades and, and to participate. And during this march, he was shot by uh by a, a, a white activist um, who was found guilty and who's who's according to, to this common source his motivation for shooting Meredith was never fully known but it seems pretty obvious to me I don't know James Howard Meredith to me is someone that I think everyone should know more about and uh, I feel impelled to to reach out to him and see if we can maybe get him on this podcast see if he'd be interested in in meeting with us. And in fact, he would he would go into a career of politics later as a Republican. What some viewers may not know or listeners may not know is for for most of our country's history, the Democrats were seen as a segregationist. And it wasn't until the Kennedy administration in LBJ that that flipped and that more African Americans felt aligned with the Democrat message over the Republican message. But he was a devout Republican and in fact, there's an interesting uh, uh, element that I read about later in life. He ended up serving as an advisor to Jesse Helm, who was a Democrat um, segregationist and was criticized for it. And when he was criticized for it by the civil rights movement, he said truthfully that he offered his services to every member of the Senate. And Jesse Helms was the only one who took him up on it. So it's 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 really interesting to see how politics has uh, has evolved over time. But this isn't a show about politics as much as we try to make it not be about that. It's about recording the history of people who were witness to these events. And um, General Matz was witness to this this uh, this really important event in human history. And I want to thank General Matz again for pointing this out as we were doing edits and revisions. Uh, I don't think I would have ever have run across James Meredith in the casual course of studies. And now I would really love to meet the man. So on with the interview. Well, and unfortunately, that wouldn't be the last time that military forces, National Guard, Army, would have to make sure that black people in the Deep South could go to high school or college. I read later events that occurred in, in Alabama where the federal government had to get involved when schools uh, had to integrate. As someone who was born in 1970, when all of this was on the very tail end or gone, it just, it's hard for me to imagine. But you were, you were right there having to protect our country from itself. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, then there were many incidents afterward. 
But actually, there was an inter there was an incident prior to the Mississippi one, which I was not involved in. But when Eisenhower was president, I think it was around fifty seven. It was the uh, Little Rock. Remember the integration of the Little Rock schools yeah. in Little Rock, Arkansas, and troops were sent there for that. I was not in the army then. I was in college then. And something that we shared with our audience um, on a previous podcast, we interviewed a uh, African-American um, United States Army Air Force soldier who was drafted in the war and worked at the Pamp Army Air Base. And um, he faced racism in the town, but on the base in Pampa, they they treated him equally. He didn't run into discrimination there. And one of the things we shared with our audience is the armed forces was the first branch of the federal government to become fully integrated. You're exactly right. In 1947, Truman was president. And I, I, I think it was a legislation law passed where they, where they fully integrated the army. Yeah. And it started, uh, and then Eisenhower got really got behind it and did a good job on ensuring our armed forces were integrated. Yeah, so so the U.S. Army was the first uh, the first major constituency really to 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 show them show the world how to integrate, and we did a very good job. And 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 still do from the people we talked to who fought in the Gulf War, uh, Vietnam. Um, it was one of the few places in society where it didn't matter what color skin you were. I always found it interesting that today a lot of people think of the military as being this more conservative, maybe slow-moving type of organization. But in reality, they've led the way in, in many different facets in terms of allowing our society to be more integrated. I just think it's a little wrong-headed for people to think that. No, you're right, Tony. We were the pathfinder. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So um, Vietnam War starting to heat up and you're in the military. You're probably hearing, especially if you were in the intel branch, that more and more of our soldiers were sent over there to help guide the South Vietnamese military. When did you start getting a sense that you might have to go over there? Well, I started to get that sense uh, the latter part of my first assignment with the 82nd. And by the way, uh, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I uh, said to myself, you know what? I love the Army. I want to stay in the Army. And I had a lot of great mentors there, lieutenant colonels, uh, et cetera, who had fought in World War II in Korea. And they said, Bill, you need to think about staying in. So I branch transferred from the MI to the infantry. Wow. They sent me to Korea then for a year to get a good infantry assignment. That was in 65. Now, during that time, I was watching the buildup in Vietnam. And I knew at that time, if I was going to make the Army a career, especially as an infantryman, I would be going to Vietnam. And frankly, frankly, Tony, I mean, that's, you know, the country was... Uh, you might say it was in the early stages of that war in Vietnam. Yeah. And our army was being sent over there. I was a part of that army and, uh, and I was looking forward to going. So when were you deployed to Vietnam? What year was that? 
Yeah, I left, I left for Vietnam in October of 1967. I came back from Korea, was assigned to the Ranger Department as an instructor, got married to Linda, uh, went through the, uh, the uh, infantry advance course then, and then got my assignment to Vietnam. So I went, it was, uh, yeah, it was October 67 when I got to Vietnam. And were you, uh, what was your rank and what was your role? Uh, I was a captain then. And so what, I had uh, four and a half, five years on active duty at that time. I was assigned as a rifle company commander in the Mekong Delta with the 47th Infantry, 9th Infantry Division. And for those who may not know, I believe Vietnam was broken up into four different core areas. You're exactly right. There were four core areas. Uh, the, the Delta is the, is the four core area, where I-Corps is up in the north where the Marines were, right on the DMZ. So you're, the four core was basically right just south of Saigon. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It was just south. It did not include Saigon. They were in three corps. But it was just south of Saigon and then all the way down to the tip of South Vietnam. It's a huge area. It, it, it was the rice basket of the world. And do you remember how you deployed to Vietnam? Was it by ship? Was it by plane? What were your first impressions when you made it in country? Yeah, no, I flew over by, uh, by plane as a replacement with about 250 other guys. They were uh, contract aircraft. Uh, the military was contracting aircraft to get us over there. I think I think my flight was a Pan Am flight. And uh, yeah, I got to Vietnam and I uh, remember landing at Tonsonut Air Base. It was uh, very hot. Uh, and I was told at that time uh, that uh, I would be assigned to the 82nd or to the uh, 9th Infantry Division in the Delta. A uh, helicopter came up, picked me up, and took me down there, and 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 that was it. So, as a re you were a replacement, did you take charge? I believe a captain is generally in charge of a company of men. Correct. Yes. Right. Right. In fact, the almost almost the moment I landed down there, I was assigned to the Mobile Riverine Force, which was a joint uh, Army Navy uh, force they put together to fight specifically in the Delta, which is filled with canals, rivers, etc., It's one of the uh, most unique aspects of the Vietnam War was the development of that mobile riverine force. It allowed us to get down there and root out the VC who were vicious down there. Yeah, so I was assigned as a rifle company commander. Could you share with our audience what the riverine force was, what type of boats were you in? What were typical missions? Yeah, yeah, I can. It was a mobile riverine force is what they called it. Uh, they, they actually uh, started to develop it in late 65. Uh, and they, uh, it, it, it consisted of, a, uh, of an infantry brigade of about 5,000 men from the Army and a Navy uh, flotilla or squadron of uh, landing craft boats. We call them tango boats. Uh, the troops would get into them, sort of similar to the Higgins boats, you know, that took the GIs ashore at Normandy. But these were much bigger, heavier craft. They were armored cra uh, craft. 
that would ply the rivers and go up the canals and land us, beaches, beach assaults. So uh, there was a Navy captain in charge of the uh, Navy, port, uh, Navy element of it and an Army full colonel in charge of the, uh, the uh, Army part of it, which was an infantry brigade, three battalions. I was in one of those battalions. And we lived on barrack ships in the middle of the Mekong River, <laughs> Navy barrack ships or LSTs. So we would embark down the gangplanks onto a, onto a little pontoon bridge. And then from there, you'd hop up over into your boats and you depart early, early hours of the morning. I'm talking two, three o'clock in the morning, steam at night, uh, radio silence, no lights to your objective area and beach. What what's the, what was the psychology like where you're deployed to a country where I presume the safest place in that area was on a barge in the middle of the Delta? Delta. Yeah, uh, you mean uh, what was it? Li the living like? You mean? Yeah, well, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, most people when they think of the army uh, being deployed, they're on some big base, but you guys yes, were on right. this on this barge. Was that because it was safer or because it was just easier to conduct your missions from the barge? It was easier to conduct the mission because, <clears throat> because Tony, that you take a look at the map of Vietnam. The hugest, largest area is the Delta area, and it's, and it's laced with tiny canals. It's laced with rivers. The major river is the, is the Mekong River. Then there's the Apbok River. Then there's two or three others. Uh, there's only one hard stand road that goes through the Delta south from Vietnam all the way to the tip. So the VC would mine that. And it was very, so the best way to get around and to root the VC out of these villages that they were taking refuge in was by boat. Wow. And in fact, the Vietnamese traveled down there by sampan. Do you remember your first combat mission? in Vietnam? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. It was like in early November. I was only there. I was only there a few days when, uh, my battalion commander, Colonel Bland, who incidentally was my boss in the 82nd. <laughs> so he was obviously one of my mentors. Yeah. I mean, I, for whatever reason, he, he took a liking in me and, uh, the West Point uh, graduate of 1949, so he was a battalion commander there. So he asked for me by name when I came to Vietnam. That's how I got assigned his unit. And he said, Bill, uh, when I landed, he said, how's Linda doing? I hope everything is fine. He said, I'm giving you Charlie Company. <laughs> so I had command of Charlie Company. And it was early in November to get back to your question was my first uh, combat operation. We didn't have a lot of contact uh, on that operation. It was a three or four day operation. Uh, we did, as I recall, we found the, we hit some booby traps, uh, which you do throughout the Delta, but we found a couple large, uh, caches of weapons and ammunition and medical supplies. We blew them up, uh, those kinds of things. But that was really my very first operation. Uh, I think we had one or two, maybe casualties wounded. Nobody killed that day. So, uh, so that was my first operation. That was early November. I, I, I'd, I'd been in country about 10 days. 
Okay. Welcome to Vietnam. Here, go yeah, at a boat. Exactly. I mean, were you trained to do riverine assaults? No, ever? not at all. Not at Vietnam? all. But no, not at all. But you know, it it didn't take really a lot of training. I mean, they just uh, you know, you got into the uh to the Mike boats or the tango boats, and you were down in the well deck, you hunkered down as you moved quietly, silently up the river, then turned up into one of the canals, hoping you wouldn't get ambushed. And uh, you beached on your objective or your assault beach and then moved inland to your objective. Uh, you worked very closely with the Navy. It was a really a very good joint assignment for a young officer like myself to be exposed to another service, you know? Yeah. And we worked very, very well together. It was a very, very, uh, very, very effective force in the Delta. And it cleaned out the Delta. I mean, it, uh, you know, you read the, the stories of Tet 60, uh, 68 uh, in the Delta, I mean, we just wiped them, you know, took care of the VC units very well there. So how many men could you rapidly deploy using these boats? Are these company size units? What do they look like? Yeah, well, well our companies that actually deployed on an operation to the field were about 140, 150 men uh, each company had, and they were... Uh, there were three, uh, three or four maneuver companies. Always three went on the operation. One would stay back, et cetera. So that'll give you an idea of the numbers, yeah. And you could put about 40, of the, 40 soldiers, 40 men, uh, troops in, one, in the well deck of one of these uh, tango boats. When you had a chance to go on your first mission and step foot on the Delta and not really know uh, what you were up against, what sort of operational challenges an officer did you, did you realize? I mean, how thick was the vegetation? How, I mean, what sort of, what sort of things made you think, oh, this is going to be a real problem? Yeah. Well, um, you know, as I say, uh, I really didn't have much time to even (laughs) think about the first operation. It was amazing. And I tell people this and I write about it. I was there, uh, maybe actually had the company for two days. Then we got our first operation order. And, uh, you know, I had hardly had a chance to meet my NCOs and my lieutenants and so forth. I didn't even know their names hardly. The next thing I knew, at two in the morning, I was walking down the gangplank uh, to get on the boat to go on the operation. But what did I think about? I, I had a pretty good idea of what the terrain was like because I could om- I could see it from the air when we flew in on the helicopter, just almost all water, and uh, it's all rice paddy. So you're constantly slogging through a foot or foot and a half uh, uh, depth of rice uh, of a rice paddy, mm-hmm. and the delta is very muddy and mucky along the banks. Uh, you could get stuck. I mean. The Delta is unlike any other part of Vietnam. The rest of Vietnam was hard stand. You had you had roads, you had very hard stand, heavy, thick vegetation to walk on. Down there, you didn't. Along the banks were called, uh, there were nipapom, huge, huge, uh, huge uh, growths of nipapom, trees that would grow 30, 40 feet high. Uh, this provided the VC some cover and concealment. And uh, you had to work your way and fight your way up over the beach, uh, the river beach, and then in through the nipapom and then out through the rice paddies 
until you got to the next thing of Nipapop, hmm. sort of like the hedgerows in Normandy. Only we were in the water all the time. <laughs> uh, didn't know that. I mean, when was the first time we were on a mission that you actually got shot at and thought? Uh, that was probably uh, that was probably in mid-November after we had two or three operations. Our operations would be anywhere from two to three days to seven days. You know, when you went out, you didn't know if you made contact, you'd stay till you got uh, got rid of. It. If you went out there and you found uh, your target area, there there wasn't anything there. They brought you back and let you dry out. You couldn't stay out there too long, or the the incidents of uh, the dermatology uh, 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 diseases that you got uh, took quite a uh, a toll on on American infantrymen there. So you had to constantly dry out. But the uh, yeah, the first time that we actually took fire, <clears throat> I'm not saying they were shooting directly at me, but right. but it was my company. Uh, I was in the formation. Yeah, we took fire. It was probably around mid or late November, uh, and then and then from there on, I I say that I kept the company until uh, the end of March, and of course went through Tet and went through a number of uh, number of very key battles. Well, you talk about the first time that you experienced you know enemy fire on your unit. What what sort of th- you're an officer? You're in charge of not only prosecuting the mission, but trying to do it, I presume, in a way that will also bring more of your men back. So what what was going through your mind when, you know, you started seeing your unit kind of taking fire as an officer? What do you what do you consider? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's what you train for as a young infantry soldier. That's what you were over there for. So so Tony, I'm I'm trying to dig into your question. It's a good question, but yeah, we took fire, and I knew I was in command. Uh, I was in charge, and I had to bring I had to bring fire on on the enemy. Uh, so <clears throat> so I I just ensured that we did that. I had uh, my uh, forward observer walking with me all the time. He had his own radio. He was netted back to the uh, direct support artillery unit that we had, and I had him uh, call fires on the objective area where we knew we were taking fire from. Uh, I didn't walk my infantry in until we uh, until we uh, fired on as much as possible. The first operation, I don't remember getting gunship support, but I had field artillery support. So, so yeah, what was going through my mind was to. Uh, was to uh, find a bad guy and uh, eliminate him. And uh, you always worried. The first couple operations I didn't until I saw my men get hit, lost a couple of them, and then and then it sunk in deep. That, oh, my God, you know, your mission is always first. You're taught that as a young officer, and it should be first. Uh, your second concern is the welfare and the safety of your men. And uh, infantry soldiers, they don't want to be coddled. They just want to know that you're there for them, uh, that you respect their ability, and that you're capable and that you're out there with them. You're not 100 meters behind. You know what I mean? And so I, I always thought about 
Yeah. Until I left the com- the company, I always thought about losing a guy. That that's the toughest thing. And writing the letters back home. Once you were once you were uh, informed that the estate side uh, casualty people had informed the family that you were required in the army as a as a company commander to write a personal letter to the next of kin. Uh, could be a wife, could be a mother. You see that being portrayed in a lot of films and books where at that level, at the company level, um, it, the, the responsibility for that falls on, you know, the captain, sometimes the majors. But what was it like having to pen that first letter? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't the easiest thing. And I wanted to, and they give you the information. You you know exactly where the next of kid is because the stateside unit, you know, had had been there, knocked on the door, and brought the bad news. Then 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 you're notified all the way back to to your unit in Vietnam that hey, next of kid's been notified, and please write the letter. You know, it was uh, it wasn't easy. I just wanted to make, I think I just wanted to make sure I had everything correct. You've got to be careful what you put in those letters uh, because that's so important, you know, to the family. I hadn't thought about that, but that's going to be their lasting memory of how someone they love very deeply died. Yeah, because this is a letter coming from me who was with their soldier when he died. Yes. You know, this is not the stateside chaplain coming in saying something, yep. but I was there. I may not have been right next to their son or, or, uh, uh, or husband or whatever, but I was there and tried, you tried to explain the operation as best you can. And I have, I have, not, I have letters today from people who've written back to me, families who thanked me and, and so forth. That was my next question: was whether or not these families ever reached back to you, and apparently, oh some yes, of them have. oh oh yes, they did. Yeah, no, no, I've I've got them, and I cite them in my book, my in the chapter in my book on Vietnam. That's amazing. I, you know, so you're you're part of this riverine force. You're a company commander. You got 100, 150 guys you're responsible for. Company C. You just shared with us that the first time that you remember having to take fire was in November. And then in December, you ended up just December 4th, just shortly thereafter, in in a battle where you would get the Silver Star, which is a very, very high-ranking military honor for gallantry. What What happened that day? Well, as much as we hate doing this to our listeners, you're going to have to wait till next week. To hear General Matz talk specifically, clearly, articulately, compellingly about how he would earn the Silver Star, a Purple Heart, and our nation's second highest award for valor, the Distinguished Service Cross. There'll be that and a lot more next week, so so please tune in, and uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Until then. You've heard me say before, and Ryan, during the post-roll, this part of the podcast where we share uh, listener feedback, 
that this is really uh, some of the most enjoyable part of having this podcast is being able to one have an audience, people that want to listen to this and share it with others, and 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 secondly to connect with these individuals. And someone that uh, sent us a really really amazing um, response to um, one of our previous post rolls, where basically we mentioned that Australia is uh, internationally one of our largest listener bases, which is really cool because <laughs> I think that you know Australia and Aussies are are amazing for a number of reasons. We work in the oil and gas industry. We've rubbed shoulders with a lot of people from that country and generally have had uh, really awesome experiences. So to get this feedback from someone named Dick Passfield is really special. And I'm going to read the whole thing uh, because all of it is is well-written and relevant, I think, to some of the, the mission that we have here at The Warrior Next Door, which is to not just evangelize these stories, but to encourage other people to have a sense of history and to appreciate the stories from the people in their own lives that they often may not even listen to. So it reads, Good day, Ryan and Tony. That's exactly how he put it. Good day. So that's how they do it there, which is fantastic. Uh, Dick continues, Just a short note, find your podcast excellent, particularly the aspect of both you and or a guest providing background to aspects of the interview. He particularly liked the St. Nick story, as well as that disturbing Hitler Youth series with Marta Warner. And just a few updates. This is this is editorial commentary here. Uh, the St. Nick story will run in its entirety the month of December, for those who may have missed it last year, and we're updating it. We've made some pretty amazing contacts um, since we last uh, 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 shared that basically podcast version of a book on tape uh, called the American Saint Nick last year, and there's an up, there's an update coming there. And and Marta Warner, there's an update with Marta as well. She was the individual who grew up in Nazi Germany, was a member of the, of the Hitler Youth, and had a lot of cautionary tales that are relevant to this day. She is going to be at a college in Tulsa on November 10th on a panel with a discussion with people, not just her, but people who are survivors of the Holocaust, of the Dutch Resistance, and others. And we're going to work our tails off to get that recorded and shared with you as well. Back to what Dick wrote. He continues. It was in that series or one other uh, where you may recall you provided some insight into which countries were listening. And from memory, you noted that Australia at that point had the highest number of listeners when filtered by country. Editor comment. It still does. Thank you, Aussies. He continues. It does appear from that and other data that we are a podcast nation. Regarding our preoccupation with history and war podcasts, I may be able to shed some light on that. When I was at school in the late 60s and early 70s, I recall World War I and World War II were in our history curriculum. I still remember some of the stats around Australia's contribution to World War I. Fast forward to the 2020s, and in one of my current jobs, I'm a cleaner at a regional school. See attached some pictures I took of what's on the walls of some of the classrooms. Note the broad nature of the context that extends beyond, but also includes, the Australian aspect of both wars. And we're going to put these pictures on our website. He continues, two images that you may find interesting. The Kennedy poster at one stage had a suspect list and linkage diagram under it when the class did an analysis of the assassination. Perhaps an obscure study focus for another country apart from the USA, but it was a pivotal point in the Cold War. The other image is the Gallipoli 
picture. You may or may not be familiar with that campaign in World War I. I'd recommend you Google it, and in particular, its relevance to Australian culture. Editorial comment for me now. Yeah, the Gallipoli campaign occurred um, during World War I. It was Winston Churchill, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty at that time during World War I, trying to open up another front because the Western Front had bogged down and the casualties were mounting up. So they decided to go into Gallipoli, which was then the Ottoman Empire and is now uh, the modern state of Turkey. And the Anzac troops, the Australian and New Zealand troops, bled white there. They fought with courage and distinction, but it wasn't the most properly planned operation. And um, there's still a lot of criticism for uh, from uh, Oceania for how Great Britain didn't necessarily maybe provide the proper planning for that. And it did, from my understanding, sear deeply in the memory uh, an Australian in, in New Zealand. And what, what Dick just wrote said that. His last uh, paragraph, he writes, From the above, that amount of exposure to both of those events early in a child's learning development, in many cases, is the seed that grows to a lifetime interest. Not sure how this translates across to what's happening in USA schools. I'd imagine the War of Independence and the Civil War may take up some of the curriculum. We were lucky enough not to have a war on a broad scale in our country, although I do recall my mother telling me that as a small child, she hid under the bed with her sister and her mother in Uh, in the Japanese midget submarine attack in Sydney Harbor in 1942. Thank you for sharing this with us, Dick. And thank you for sharing with us uh, a little bit of the culture of history that exists in the Australian schools. It may explain why you're a podcast nation. It may explain why um, some of the feedback that we've received has been so positive. And I cannot, Ryan and I cannot thank you enough for sharing with us uh, the photos and the commentary um, regarding some of the things that you saw. So if I had to summarize this as a teachable moment of sorts, maybe it would be something like this. Uh, history matters, and it only matters if we if we are aware of it, if we study it, if we share it, if we understand that uh, it can be repeated both the good and the bad, right? And the only way to do that is to make it um, make it a subject of importance as early as we can in our children's lives, in our own lives. And it, it sounds to me, at least in the area where uh, Dick Passfield uh, works and lives, that they're doing a pretty damn good job of that. Um, so with that being said, thanks again for listening. Really enjoy the feedback that we get. Uh, and until next week.